0: Look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is Civil Liberties Enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. What's today? Today is the 7th of June. It was supposed to be my daughter's birthday yesterday. If you listen to my mother, she doesn't know what time it is. I've got Savannah Hernandez in our studio today. She joined me for breakfast and coffee. And a chat. We're going to talk about what's going on in the southern border. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Kyle. And, you know, I would just say I'm not usually awake this early. So uh, our friendship means a lot to me. All right.
0: (laughs) So we have a mutual friend. We had dinner the other day. Uh, You grilled me because you thought, uh, here's a Fed here trying to entrap me.
1: Uh, Immediately. Immediately. You were like, oh, I'm former FBI. And I was just like, oh, hello. If you had seen the face, (laughs) it
0: was that was pretty close to what it was. Yeah, It was a mixture of... Contempt, potentially just, contempt. Yeah,
1: yeah. A little bit of disgust, maybe. I was like, ooh, a fed.
0: Yeah, like you you said that out loud. Yeah, how, I did. How, and how dare you is kind of the thought. <laughs> uh, folks, we're going to uh, get into a conversation about a lot of the stuff that she's going on. If you're not familiar with Savannah's reporting, you can find her at SAV underscore, S-A-Y-S underscore on Twitter, Sav says. In fact, I didn't actually know uh, Savannah's last name. I just knew her Twitter handle before mm-hmm. any of this stuff. Uh, I wasn't really in the space, other than I was aware that she was out there reporting. I think you'll be shocked at some of the things that she's been involved in, especially if you're just sort of waking up. A lot of people have been in the last year or two, Mm -hmm. and Savannah is one of the people that's been making that happen at a very young age as well. Which you can tell by looking at her. Actually, you probably can't tell how old she is. But thank you, thank you. I I was always, uh, I'm always surprised when I find out that people are are alert to politics at a much younger age than I was. Uh, I'm going to do a quick uh, sponsor. Thank you. We're going to thank Catholic Vote. Uh, This is Catholic Vote, as you guys well know. CatholicVote.org is the sponsor of our podcast. They do a fantastic job advocating for faith, family, and freedom. They have the loop, which you can sign up for. My mother just let me know what's in there, and now she's constantly sending me text messages saying, Hey, did you notice what they're into? Did you see what they said about Biden? Uh, It's an excellent sort of uh, newsletter to keep you on track of what's going on as a Christian in this country. And uh, there are many sources of news. So, you know, it's just one more option to be able to be aware people covering different stuff, catholicvote.org. And let's bump into Patriot Coolers real quick as well. Patriot Coolers, I'm going to show you what their hard tumblers or their hard coolers look like. These are a rotomotive thing. They are, I would say, equivalent to a Yeti, but they are less pricey. They have better capabilities. And they say Patriot on the side of them. They've got 13 stripes. The bottom always have stars. They are a fantastic patriotic company. They give back to veterans, and they take care of the Kyle Serafin Show as well. So check them out at patriotcoolers.com. Let's, uh, let's jump right into this. I want to make sure that we're pulled up. I see you all in the live chat. You're rocking and rolling. We are going to uh, just sort of send it here. So I want people to know a little bit of your background. Like I said, you're younger than I am by quite a bit. You're younger than a lot of my audience, I think, as well. Tell people how you came into this business, how in the world you end up reporting, and then we'll talk some of the stuff you've seen recently.
1: Absolutely. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Savannah Hernandez. I have been a reporter now for about five years. And I actually really love telling people my origin story of how I got into politics because it was a complete accident, actually. Uh, You know, when I was in university, I was not politically involved at all. I was always kind of interested in politics. But it was never something that I was fully into. I was probably one of those dumb college kids who might not have known the three branches of government. Like, that's how out of the loop I was, Okay.
0: Did you know how many were in the dozen?
1: Uh, maybe I don't know. You know, I've seen those man
0: on the street interviews where they ask oh simple yeah, questions.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. No, I. Uh, well, when it comes to math, I'm not the smartest Asian. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, you know, we're working on it, guys. Okay, so. um in college not politically active and then after college i was like okay have a journalism degree let me go put it to use i got a call from infowars never knew who alex jones was never heard of infowars in my life they asked me if i wanted to become a production assistant and i was like absolutely i am in no position to say no to a job
0: did you have a resume out there in the world how did in the world they even find you
1: Uh, So I was throwing my resume out for about a year at that point. And I did have prior experience in video production, news writing, PR. I had the degree, um, but I just didn't have enough experience because I was homeschooled. So I graduated when I was 20 Um, and I didn't have enough, you know, prior experience to get an entry level job in local news. So that's why I was kind of struggling. And then they reached out and it was really funny because the first time I shook Alex Jones's hand had no idea who he was zero political understanding of what was going on and then i'm working on alex jones's show for three hours a day for a year straight so that's kind of how i got my crash course into politics
0: there's nothing funnier than the idea and by the way uh, we're sitting in here you're getting ready to you know to go on the live stream and you've got alex asking you questions he's still he's still (laughs) in contact with you still a friend obviously um your introduction to politics was three hours plus a day of alex jones Mm -hmm. full speed alex jones has not slowed down
1: since then no, no. And, and yeah, it, like I said, it, it's the craziest part of politics too because I'm getting like this very in-depth understanding of the Rockefellers, of uh, all of these, you know, upper echelons of society that are ruling over us. So it's not just like, oh, Republicans and Democrats. It's like these globalists want to kill all of us and they're targeting you the, your can chip. Can you do the Alex voice? <laughs> I can't do the Alex voice. I'm a girl, you know? I can't go that deep. But uh, it, was, it was just absolutely uh, incredible to like sit there every day. And it was funny because I remember he was talking about... I believe in Vietnam they tried, the government was experimenting with this gay bomb um, they wanted to like drop an estrogen bomb on the like their their enemies in Vietnam to try to see if they could turn I have them no gay. idea if
0: this is true or not, but no, okay. it, it sounds amazing.
1: And that's what I'm saying. And so I was like, okay, this man is crazy. And what my job was is like, we are live looking up articles as Alex is talking to kind of, um, you know, add to the show. And so I'm looking this up and I pull up a Wikipedia page about how, yeah, the government did try to... Uh, Propose this program. They tried to experiment with this, and I was just like, "Okay, that's that's enough for me today." So that was the intro. Worked as a production (laughs) assistant.
0: For most people, that would be the end of the story. That'd be like, and then I became a horticulturalist and I spent all my days in a garden.
1: Yeah, it it was so funny because I would go home on the weekends and I would tell my parents all this crazy stuff. I was like, there is fluoride in our water. We are being poisoned. There are chemtrails. Okay, people, we are being spied on by the government right now. Our phone is listening to us. I don't like the feds anymore. And they were just like, you need to calm down. And I was like, no, the government's here. They want to kill us, man. And so it was so funny because even my parents were like maybe you should find a different job but I stayed there for two and a half years worked up my way up uh to lead producer of their afternoon show Alex had me filling in I was doing man on the streets one of my first viral clips I went to a Trump protest because again because I was politically um unknowledgeable this was during 2018 right so we're halfway through the Trump presidency And I had the basic understanding that everybody hated Trump. And as a Hispanic woman, I was supposed to hate him, too, because he hates Hispanics and he also hates women. Right. So I would go to these. Did you
0: have that in your head when you go out there?
1: No, no, no. Absolutely not.
0: That's what the people looked at you and saw.
1: That was the narrative. That's what the people expected me to think. And so I would go to these Trump rallies with the intent of tell me why I should hate Donald Trump. If you are taking time and energy out of your day to hate somebody, please tell me why. I should hate them, too, because this is clearly an issue if you're really out here, like at 2 p.m. in a Texas summer holding a sign about how much you hate Donald Trump. You think I want to be out here in the sun? You must really hate this man, right?
0: And you must have some reasons.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so my first viral clip, I go to an anti-Trump protest here in Austin and these were grown adults. Okay, these people were in their 50s, uh, 30 to 50 years old. So like
0: grown but grown maybe not adults
1: all right like you all have developed brains you should know why you hate somebody if you're protesting them not one of them could respond as to why they hated donald trump i was like well can you just give me one reason and they were like well there's so many i was like i know right give me one they couldn't give me one it went super viral and more than anything it kind of unlocked for me Um, the reality of where America was at, that the average person had no idea why they were angry. It was all false outrage. It was all based off of a lot of government propaganda. And then we fast forward to the BLM riots of 2020. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I like seeing things firsthand. I like witnessing history with my own two eyes. And so I was going out because I was watching the media tell us that these were fiery, but mostly peaceful protests on the streets. And then Austin was being targeted. And so I went out and I was watching said, peaceful protests i was watching people's cars get firebombed i was watching police officers get bricks thrown at their head and it really lit a fire in my my soul i guess because i was like hey look i get it if you think that there was some type of injustice here but one what we're being told about george floyd isn't true two blm is a lie and they're profiting off of you guys and they're using your outrage to destroy the united states of america based off of a lie and three yeah okay uh, i don't always love the police in every situation either but uh um, I, I don't think it's right to throw bricks at people's head. It's just not a nice thing to do.
0: No, nobody wants to go to their job and have a brick thrown.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not a nice thing to do. You know what I mean? So I, I really did feel bad for these police officers. And I was like, I want um, them to know that there are Americans that stand up for them and are on their side. So I went and I held a police lives matter sign. And on the other side, it said, say his name, David Dorn, because David Dorn had just been murdered yep. by BLM looters for having the audacity to defend his friend's uh, store From being looted, he was murdered for that. Uh, I I listened to this story and it just really, you know, struck a chord with me. So I went and I held that sign. And of course, BLM tried to beat my ass. I got mobbed. I got my hair pulled. I got uh, swung at. Um, And I don't regret. What was your
0: security element looking like at that time?
1: It was looking like me with a uh, $5 poster board. <laughs> so that's what it was looking like. Um, and, and, you know, it was uh, my security was like me being pissed off because I was like, look, you guys are bullies. OK, I I don't care if you think that there is an injustice. Americans don't deserve to have their neighborhoods burned down, their uh, stores looted, their lives put at risk. They don't they don't deserve to be uh, again, like fearing for their lives because you're mad about something that happened so went and stood up for police got beat up went and did it again to really prove the point because i don't like bullies and i also believe that we still live in one of the greatest countries in the world and we have our first amendment and that's very important and so i wanted to go express that and i didn't even realize that in going and holding up this poster um it was a really good example of how far we have gotten as a country and how uh, dangerous it can be to express your First Amendment because they had grown men trying to beat me up for holding a sign silently.
0: Which is ridiculous. I'm not a very big guy and uh – and I feel like I could probably like just throw you over my shoulder and run you somewhere. Probably. You know, that's that's just, <laughs> you're not a big person, but you have an enormous personality. Thank um, you. I, I, I listed this as uh, the indomitable Savannah Hernandez. And in many ways, what a you, word. you you refuse to be cowed or backed down by these people. Uh, you said adrenaline junkie. Has that always been the case? Because there's it takes something to go into, the, into a mob. I've been in a mob. I've been in a mob as a law enforcement officer. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not cool when you're armed and you have body armor and you know that it's, there's too many people there for backup. Yeah. It's way different. If you have a microphone and just a lot of personality and spunk, you're going to walk in there and see if you can walk out. Yeah, How did you end up there?
1: Well, Alex actually sent me to Hong Kong Um, this was during their pro-democracy protests back in 2019. I
0: thought you were going to tell us that you were doing martial arts training. No, (laughs) that's what I wanted to hear.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely not. I'm just crazy. Um, so Alex sent me to Hong Kong and I was, I was following what was happening over there. They were fighting back against the CCP and I was watching all of this happen. And it was one of the coolest moments of my life because if uh, you know how in the united states the left likes to be like save our democracy oh my gosh i actually feel like i did witness um people who really did want true democracy right they wanted their voices heard they didn't want to be ruled over an authoritarian government they were flying the american flag it was a beautiful thing to see and then you had the ccp come in funny enough uh, a lot of the antifa tactics that we see in the united states come from the hong kongers and their protests a lot of those umbrellas uh, the tactics that they use to um, put out tear gas canisters that all came from hong kong interesting So when I was over there,
0: were there, do you think people were observing it and saw, oh, that was successful? Or those were those tactics, things that had been briefed beforehand and the people in Hong Kong took them to do one thing. They wanted democracy and the people in the Antifa groups wanted to do fascism.
1: Yeah, that's what it was, is the people in Hong Kong were actually trying to be like, please help us. And then Antifa were like, well, we're trying to take other people's freedoms away. So we're going to use the same tactics for other purposes. Sure. Um, So was over there, was getting tear gassed with the Hong Kongers, bricks whizzing past my head. I also don't have any body armor at this point because Alex was like, just go. Uh, You know, he was like, who wants to go to Hong Kong? I raised my hand. I was on a flight the next, the same day. Was it just
0: you? I mean, a camera crew of some kind?
1: I was just with one other camera person. (laughs) And Alex was just like, just go. It was funny because everyone kept coming up to me and speaking Cantonese. And I was like, I am American. (laughs) I was like, I'm an American Asian. Sorry. Um,
0: How was that received?
1: They were really nice. Hong Kongers were great because they were really grateful that journalists were there to go cover their story. Because um, oftentimes in China, if you speak out against the government, you get disappeared. Mm-hmm. So they were really wanting um, coverage on what was happening over there. Um, and again, it was really a, an interesting thing to go witness. But as tear gas canisters you know, were flying overhead and I'm choking and dying, I was like, this is awesome. And... <laughs> I just was like, witnessing history with your own two eyes is so cool. And I, I wanted to do it. And then when it came to the BLM riots as well, I, I did see the media trying to lie to the people and tell them one narrative that was happening on the ground that actually wasn't. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll go do your job since you refuse to accurately tell the American people what's going on. Um, So I think that's where a lot of that comes from, too, is I don't like people being lied to. And it is very easy to go out with a camera and go show people the truth about what's going on, especially with Twitter, especially with social media in the modern day. Um, So, yeah, that's how that got started.
0: Now, you're still pretty young, uh, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking to people in the news industry. Tell people how old you are, because they're going to have their heads blown after this experience you've just laid out.
1: I'm 26. So technically like 50 in woman years, but you know. It is what it is.
0: So you're 26. You've been doing this for five years Mm -hmm. since many people were still trying to find their first job out of, out of college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you went through journalism school specifically. I did. Did you take information from journalism school and apply it? Or did you realize that, uh, you know, how does journalism school compare to doing the real job that you do? Most people don't ever actually do the job you're doing coming out of it. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. It's really interesting because I feel like the entire education system and again, I think one of the reasons why... I'm successful in my career. I attribute that to my mom a lot because she did homeschool me, and she was like, "You need to be an individual thinker. If you want to learn something, go do it yourself. Go figure out life yourself. Don't tell people uh, to tell you what to do. Just go do it." And the education system is kind of the opposite. If you look at the American education system, whether that's K through 12 or even in university, you're kind of put in this box, and you're told to listen to authority. You're told how to do something a certain way. And regarding journalism in the modern day, it's kind of the same thing. And it's really funny because a lot of you know people working for the notable organizations the notable mainstream media will scoff at me we drop
0: names here you don't have to you don't have to notable them Uh,
1: yeah okay you know rolling stone uh nbc cnn you guys know all of the major players here a lot of their reporters will scoff at me and they'll call me a fake journalist and that my journalism isn't real and i'm like i'm out going out with the camera and i'm showing the american people what's going on
0: one of the ar- as yeah. journalism should be. One of the arguments I used to make, uh, or I've started making since I've gotten involved in any of this, uh, and it's the same thing I think Matt Taibbi has said, and and he's broken big time with the mainstream mm-hmm. and gone out there independent, the way that the only reporting is getting done. Journalism used to be a blue collar profession. Mm-hmm. It used to be gumshoe types. It was detectives in their heart, even if they didn't have the badge and the gun, mm-hmm. and they were trying to break stories. They were trying to learn things. They were trying to expose them to the American people. Mm-hmm. They didn't need a degree. They didn't they just needed tenacity like you have. Uh, they needed a curious mind and a penetrating intellect and like the joy for them was exposing the powerful mm-hmm. to criticism and exposing corruption and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's not there anymore. Now they're now they're bootlickers. like your generation yeah. and you know just between our generations, they're bootlicking, you know, govern me harder daddy kind of people.
1: They're the propaganda arm of whatever administration is in office, essentially. Yep. I think under Donald Trump was the first time that the media, you know, they were completely upended and he really did expose them for exactly what they are, which was a propaganda arm because they couldn't control Trump. They were trying to twist every single story and make him seem like this KKK Nazi dictator, which was just, you know, absolutely hilarious. Because uh, one of the things that I like to do with my journalism as well as actually go out and talk to the american people so um, for example last year joe biden was tweeting out about how the economy was doing great and americans had more money in their savings accounts and the you know the job market was doing great and so i simply take his tweets i print them out and i go to lower income communities and i, I show them the tweet and i say hey uh the president says that the gas prices are lowering what do you think about that and they go what the hell is this that's not true we are struggling out in these streets and it's horrible we're at a baby formula The shelves are empty. Gas prices are high. We have record high inflation. So Joe Biden can sit here and tweet all he wants, but it's an absolute lie. And then it goes super viral because CNN isn't going and interviewing these people. CNN is sitting there and they're, uh, you know, reiterating these fake statistics that the Biden administration is putting out, as opposed to actually going and speaking to the people that are living under the bad policy that we have been put under. So, um I think that's another important aspect. And like you said, that's the way that I view journalism. Uh, You you know, it's kind of crazy to me because people are like, oh, Sav, I love your work. It's so great. How do I do that? And I'm like, dude, I'm not special at all. Anybody can do my job. Anybody with the will to go tell the truth can do what I do. And I love telling people that because it's like, you don't have to be some, you know, big name or have a huge following to be a journalist in the modern day, especially with where Twitter is at. anybody can do this job. Anybody can go out, talk to their fellow man, go get the story, go point and shoot a camera. If you see something going on, it's, it's a, it's a really great market to tell the truth right now.
0: So we were just talking uh, at breakfast about how the, the, Mainstream media, the the sort of legacy media, is going to die under its own weight. They R.I.P. Have, boys. It's there's a lot of money behind it. There's a lot of infrastructure there, mm-hmm. and as you just said, a Twitter account and a phone is enough to go out there and get started. A microphone like this is not incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. You don't need a big studio. We're sitting in a you know in an extra bedroom of the house that we rent here, and we can talk to as many people as are interested in listening. Mm-hmm. So that's changed since you started, even though
1: absolutely because
0: there you know alex jones one of the things that happened is did he used to have a mainstream was it on carried on any cable or something like that how was infowars was it always online
1: so he is still on radio shows and then he was on uh radio he started on access television back in the day when i feel
0: like there was yeah like mainstream tv but it was it was very small
1: it was smaller it was on a smaller scale but then um again via social media. He did have a YouTube channel. He had a Twitter. He had a Facebook. And I was actually there the day that all of that was taken away. It was crazy. I remember I woke up in the morning. I looked at my phone because I had the news alerts on. And I looked at my phone and it said Infowars banned from, I believe it was all in the same day, Apple Podcasts, um, Facebook, Twitter, maybe even YouTube, it was like four of the big, big platforms and he got banned simultaneously and, you know, they basically worked in cohesion to silence him, which was absolutely insane to see. And I think living through that as well, um, opened my eyes again to how controlled the information that we're receiving really is. Like we, we are, uh, kind of sold this illusion that we do have freedom of speech and that we have freedom of thought in the United States of America. But to be quite honest with you, Alex Jones is still currently censored on Twitter he's still banned on that platform right. he's still banned from youtube and i think that not having access to that information or knowledge even if the left wing thinks that it's misinformation okay then combat it with better information uh, then go and you know set the record straight you have the ability to do that and alex has the ability to say whatever he wants that's a beauty of free speech um, but what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, like i said what we are even given uh, or the narrative of why we're in a certain war, like look at Russian Ukraine right now, that is very controlled. What we are allowed to see is very controlled. And so, um, it's interesting to see in the United States in 2023, what we're allowed to think.
0: And that's really what it is. So CISA put out some documentation stating that they were going to, um, Basically, co-opt Americans' thought processes under cognitive infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? So they have access to to do infrastructure control. Now they've said what's between your your ears is part of the infrastructure, the cognitive infrastructure of That's the information technology. So we are literally seeing government agencies saying 1984 Orwellian type thought process controls. Yeah. Wrong think, uh, wrong speak. And mm-hmm. Alex is obviously one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're when you're out there in the world seeing this stuff. This is most of your most of your adult life has been this way. Yeah. And you also got to be sort of maybe broken out of that mold by being a homeschooled person. I think so. Uh, So when you looked at your colleagues going through the academic career, Mm -hmm. could any of them see this and go like, oh, yeah, like, I don't want to be censored. Or did they, you know, because you're you're essentially advocating a liberal position. The the liberal position like true liberalism. Yeah. N- not not <laughs> like the current. like
1: OG liberal. Yeah. yeah,
0: like lowercase L liberalism, mm-hmm. which is to say that you should be able to have whatever thoughts and, and experiences and, and state any way that you want. And mm-hmm. if it's bad, we're gonna just beat it down with better information, with facts, mm-hmm. with questions, with the fact that you don't know why you even believe that way. And so mm-hmm. that's that's a liberal position. That's what freedom is about. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of illiberals that are that are looking to control narrative. It's very yeah. it's the opposite of liberalism. Did your colleagues do they at least have that like instinct as young people? Cause that's kind of where it's always been a punk rock world where it's like, if you're young, you want to damn the man, you want to fight against it. You want to yeah. rage against the machine, like rage against the machine now is like pushing for vaccine shots <laughs> and stuff like that. you can't come to the They're
1: like rage for the machine they actually, do. actually guys, but
0: they're old now they're, yeah. you know, they're old enough. They're older than I am. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, twice your age. Do, do your colleagues in your age bracket at least get it that like, you know, they're supposed to push back against the, the, the way that they're told the thing because that's what young people do or no.
1: Um, I mean, regarding the people that I went to college with, a lot of them went into local news, so I think that it's a bit different for them than it would have been for me, just because my career path was more political. And when it comes to politics, you are m- m- like much more at risk to be censored. I mean, I was <laughs> censored for two years. I was banned off of Twitter for two years. I want to go there next um, for journalism. So, uh, I think it's a little bit different for them, but I do know of people who were even working in that local news setting where it's like, okay, maybe you work in a small town and the biggest story of the day is like a cow being in the middle of the road. But when COVID happened... A lot of local journalists were like, hey, uh, you know, there's a a big uptick in myocarditis cases in the city right now. Or uh, this person is coming forward with a story about a vaccine injury. And then they were told that they couldn't cover that. So that's when at the local level that wouldn't necessarily be, I guess, tied to politics or censorship or be involved in that messy, I guess, situation. That's when a lot of like the normies, if you will, started getting dragged into that and started waking up.
0: It makes sense. Let's talk about censorship. Let's talk about your censorship. We know Alex Jones was pulled down. You got Mm -hmm. to see that happen. You were there when it went down. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And then you got to experience your own version.
1: I did. And, um, <laughs> you know, I do thank the Lord that he gave me such a stubborn personality because, yes, when somebody tells me no, I'm like, OK, I'm going to go even harder. I'm going to go 10 times harder. And I think that has been really great for my journalism career because, uh, you know, if government officials tell me that I can't record something and I'm in a public setting and I know that I can record, I'm like, guess what? I didn't really want to record this, but now I'm going to record it even harder than I was going to. So congratulations. Congratulations. We'll get into that in a minute. But um, basically, I did have my Twitter account from well, during the beginning of my reporting career. I didn't even get censored when I was working for Infowars and Alex Jones. Uh, I had quite the following at that point. I'm not a numbers person, but just to give people an idea, like I had over 100,000 followers at that point. So it's like, OK, as a journalist, when you're you know, on the independent side, it's like your following kind of shows your credibility. People- and you're, you're
0: on the map with 100,000. Mm-hmm. Like there are people who write for Daily Caller. There are people who write for The Washington Post that hit me up, you know, New York Times, and they've got 15,000 followers on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it is a gauge. Right.
1: And, right. You're, in
0: the, and you're in the game at 100,000
1: so and exactly so that's how i was kind of viewing it i was like okay like people are following me i'm a little i'm credible at this point people trust me um to come to me for what is going on and i gained that following uh via like i said doing a lot of that man on the street work doing a lot of the blm riots um just speaking out about what i was seeing in the modern day and pushing back against that fake narrative that we were being fed quite a bit so at the end of 2020 i went to the million maga march in dc and i got a beautiful pan of the crowd singing the star our Spangled Banner in unison, a gorgeous moment. Uh, Donald Trump himself retweeted it. This is when he was still on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It racked up 10 million views. And two weeks later, without notice, my entire journalism career was gone. So I logged into Twitter and the entire account was just it was suspended. And again, um, for people who might be like, eh, it's just a Twitter account. When you're an independent journalist, that's your platform. That's how you break news to the masses. Because yeah. I wasn't on Fox News. I didn't have a news organization backing me. Uh, I was working with, a- well, actually, I wasn't working with Alex at that time. I was producing a different show. So I wasn't even in uh, or under you know, InfoWars at that point. So it was very much like me, depending on my platform, to break the news. And that was taken away from me. And at that point as well, like I was going on Fox News, I had broken national news stories, um, with that Twitter account. I had um, various news organizations like Daily Mail or Fox News or, you know, a bunch of them that would use my videos on Twitter to link to the story about how white Antifa members stopped a black man from going to work in the name of Black Lives Matter because they were blocking the road. Now, yeah, when you go and you read that article, there's no video to corroborate that story anymore because my Twitter account got deleted. so And were
0: you doing these live a lot of times that you were streaming them through Periscope, or whatever the tools were on Twitter? At the...
1: I, I wasn't doing lives just because um, it's harder to break news in that way when you have like the one long hour uh, stream. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I would do lives, but I felt it was more effective to do like pieces, right? So of... you're just
0: uploading small clips. Mm-hmm. Do you still at least have those clips?
1: They, yes, they have been reposted now. Nice. So yeah. Um, Two weeks after Donald Trump retweets me, I was like, oh, this is awesome. Two weeks later, I was like, that was not awesome. My entire career is gone. And uh, Twitter gave me the excuse that I was evading a ban, even though that was my only account. I had no other prior accounts and they wouldn't get back to me.
0: And that's when you came to that's when I was aware of you for the first time, honestly. And I think that's that's the other funny thing. That's a Streisand effect in some Mm -hmm. ways. Because your account is far bigger now, is it is is it bigger than it was before?
1: It's uh, it freaks me out how big it is. I'm like, why do this many people follow me? That All right, I'll say me. it. So <laughs> she's just topped
0: four hundred thousand followers, which is a significant thing. It's cool. Um, it I gives feel very you grateful. Wild reach and catching a ten million view tweet is within your range on any given day if you put out good information and you do. Thank you. Yeah, there's no question about that. So it's they shot themselves in the foot. I think a lot of people saw that during mm-hmm. 2020 and 2021 the the aggressive political left, but maybe even just the, would you, you know, Munich Party, the sort of establishment. Yeah, they went hard at people like you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it and it backfired, and it's backfiring right now
1: beautifully beautifully it's been incredible because yeah so i got the initial ban and then a year later i was like yeah i'm gonna make another account because i started my own podcast and i was like let me make a podcast account and then because it's me you know i was i was out on the ground Mm -hmm. doing journalism and um i went and i covered the 2022 ncaa women's swimming championship that leah thomas swam in i was the only reporter on the ground and i actually spoke to the first athlete that spoke out against leah thomas she was a young freshman virginia Tech swimmer i don't think uh, anyone's really heard from her since because um you know she didn't even want to be political she was nervous to get this clip out but she was so upset that she was willing to speak to the media because it was her teammate that was knocked out of the final round it was her teammate's senior year And if it wasn't for Leah Thomas, her teammate would have made the finals. So I was there covering this event and I was actually inside and I was getting those first clips of Leah Thomas absolutely annihilating all of the other females. I was talking to the parents there. I was listening to them tell me our daughters were told by the NCAA, don't say Leah Thomas's name in the locker room don't talk to the media, but this girl was brave enough to do so. Now, the interesting thing about this clip is she came forward and she said that, of course, a lot of the girls felt very disenfranchised because they worked their entire careers to swim in this competition and they were being stripped of that I went and I spoke to the pro Leah Thomas protesters who told me that Leah Thomas was a beautiful woman and you couldn't even see a biological difference between Leah Thomas or any of the other girls. Mind you, my friends, this is my first time at a swim meet. Okay, never been to one before. And if you go to these things, a lot of the swimmers are in the same suits. They have their their caps on. So they all look very similar. I knew when Leah Thomas came out because that was a big man with broad shoulders, uh, you know, coming in at six feet tall. You could very clearly see that he stood out above the rest. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting, too, to see the crowd's reactions because the parents would politely clap when Leah Thomas came out. But when another, you know, female won, it was cheers. The parents were happy. A lot of the parents were upset, too. And people were asking, well, these athletes should have stood up. Where are the parents? But I did go and speak to these athletes. And a lot of them were these young 18-year-old college freshmen. And, uh, you know, think back to when you were 18, Right. Would you have wanted to have made a stand um, against one of the biggest political issues, risk your entire swimming career, potentially be kicked out of your school and labeled a bigot? Or would you rather have just preferred to swim? And again, I know people don't love that because there are a lot of people, especially in this audience that are like, no, you have to stand up for what's right. But that was the mindset of a lot of these young athletes.
0: It's That's really hard at 18.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: It's hard at 40. It's hard at 60 for most people to do what's right because it's right. We saw this, you know, a lot of people were asking where the FBI whistleblowers, and I experienced that. It's like, they're doing the same thing you did. They're shutting their mouth and trying to do their job. They're Mm -hmm. trying to keep their mortgage and keep their kids fed. When you're 18 and you have no concept of what the world looks like. Yeah. Um, and I was a swimmer, so I I don't know if you knew that, but I swam uh, a lot of the types of women that were not with women, I hope. Well, I swam with women. They were just faster than me. And that's why I'm not, (laughs) that's why I wasn't that competitive. I swam with women who went to the Olympics. I swam with women who were at the top of the game Mm -hmm. that all got scholarships to top tier schools. And so knowing what they put in every single day, and Mm -hmm. most people have no idea. I mean, I used to swim five hours a day.
1: Wow.
0: We would do 10,000 yards in a, in a workout, Mm -hmm. which is wild. These women put everything on the line for all of their life. Even if it's only just the four years in high school, usually it's a lot beyond that. It's it's way, way earlier. You're taking a dream that has been a decade old, and that is the majority of the the time that they were conscious. Mm -hmm. You know, you just met my five year old. She probably won't remember a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But from five, six, whatever on until 18, these women are swimming every day. Yeah. And they're putting their whole life into it, and then they're getting crushed. So, them not speaking out, I I don't feel bad about them. I feel extremely angry about the coaches not speaking out. And the um,
1: NCAA. And
0: the administrations
1: that are doing this yeah. stuff, because that's gross. So, this young girl spoke out, and uh, this was the second deletion of my second Twitter account because nice. her interview went viral, of course, amassed 2 million views. Tucker Carlson picked it up and. The background of that is that I had put the clip up and she had made a Twitter account and she messaged me. She's, can you please take the clip down? And I thought it was an anonymous account that was just trying to get me to delete the account. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Because you didn't
0: have contact with her otherwise. Uh,
1: Yeah, I didn't have contact with her. And then she said, no, it's me. She sent me a selfie and she was like, please take it down. I don't want my entire swimming career to be destroyed and I don't want to not be able to swim in the competition Luckily, I was able to talk to her and I did tell her, you know, I'm not going to make this decision for you, but I think that your message is very important. We talked about it and she said, "Okay, leave it up. So she was brave enough to leave that interview up and amassed two million views, got picked up by Tucker Carlson. Three days later, Twitter deleted the entire account. And at that point, I wasn't mad about my work being deleted. I was mad because this young girl was courageous enough to stand up, push back against the entire narrative that was being pushed that men are now women. They should be swimming in women's sports and her voice was deleted. So that was the second time. And then I made another account after that because I was like, I'm still going to keep doing what I do. And I went to uh, Pride in DC last year. I took a video of a transgender man with his exposed breast uh, because I guess he had fake boobs, twerking on a cop in front of children. That went very viral, got picked up by almost every single right-wing media network. On top of that, I did go do that uh, clip where I went to... The inner city in Dallas. And I said, hey, Joe Biden says that gas is low. What do you guys think? And the black community absolutely roasted Joe Biden to filth. And people loved that clip. Uh, amassed about 4 million views in a couple of days. Account deleted again. Right. So those were the three times when he made national news and Twitter deleted it. Of course. So it and that was the old.
0: that was the old Twitter. That was the experience conservative had. I didn't have that. I know a lot of people probably in the audience had that. And they mm-hmm. had smaller followings, but still. Same experience. Yeah. So many of them may not know that you were the one behind all that because I, 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 I knew all those clips, mm-hmm. you know, and I didn't know who put them all out necessarily. And when we started talking, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Of course it comes from one brave voice. That's the other funny thing. Like a light in the dark shines an awful lot and people can see it. And so you've been a light in the dark doing that kind of stuff. Thank Um, you.
1: But no, honestly, it's not, it's not me. It's the American people. Like I truly feel like I just, I want to use my platform to highlight the voices we we otherwise wouldn't hear from. And so I'm like, you know, this, this really isn't me doing this. This is the American people that are brave enough to talk to me. It's the American people who are brave enough to push back against the narrative and tell the truth about what's going on. I'm just the one that is lucky enough to be able to help elevate their stories. So, um, you know, it did take, Elon Musk spending $44 billion for my account to finally come back. And when I did get it back, I'm not going to lie. I, I cried and I called my dad because every single time I got deleted, I would call my dad and I would be like so angry. And I wouldn't necessarily be crying, but I would just be angry because journalism is a lot of work, it is. And I would get mad because the work got deleted, because I was really just trying to do something positive, because I was trying to tell the truth, and I kept getting punished for it. Or because like with, um, you know, the Virginia Tech swimmer, she was courageous enough to get her voice out. And she was the one that was silenced at that point. Because, uh, you know, even when I'm at the scale of breaking national news, I'm still not good enough to have a Twitter account. And I'm still, uh, you know, not worthy of being able to to ha- Utilize my own free speech via big tech, and so um, getting the Twitter account back was awesome. And I called my dad, and I was so excited. And you know, he was there for all of the censorship, and he really helped keep me going too because he was like, "Okay," he would listen to me cry and be sad, and then he'd be like, "Okay, now go make another Twitter account and keep going. Stop crying about this."
0: I love it. That's mm-hmm. really, really important stuff. the uh, The frustration is not that you lost something; it's the in- it's knowing that it's an injustice, and experiencing that you know, coming at you in a real way.
1: It's frustrating, it was a bit frustrating, but what ended up you sound happening like, You though, sound like Andy when you say a bit frustrating. <laughs> it's a bit frustrating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, the best part about getting the Twitter account back is that within 24 hours of coming back, I had amassed 100,000 followers in 24 hours, um, plus the original 120 that I already had because I didn't realize and I'm so grateful to every single person because I had so many friends who would take my work and they would share it on their Twitter accounts when I would get deleted. Um, I had Instagram at that time. So some people would take my clips from Instagram, put them on Twitter. Uh, You know, I had a lot of people. I know we don't love Fox News now, guys. But, you know, back in the day when Tucker was a part of Fox News, his people made it a point to platform my work. So I did have people in Fox News helping elevate my work because they knew it was censored. Um, So I just felt so supported because in the right wing community, they were seeing that this was happening and that this truth was being silenced. And so, so many people supported me. And, you know, like you said, Streisand effect, as soon as that Twitter account came back, it has exploded beyond anything that I could have ever imagined. Like I said, I never had the intention of being a speaker. I never wanted to be in the space. I never thought I would have a big following. It still freaks me out to this day. And I'm like, Ugh. like when I got my Twitter account back, I was nervous to post because I was like, this is too many people. I'm scared.
0: It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's a- big megaphone.
1: It's, it's a big responsibility too. And it's it one is. that I take very seriously. Like when I go out on the field, uh, cause I do a lot of videos and sometimes they're just selfie videos. Right. And it's like a two minute of me laying out. This is what's happening at the border. Here's some stats. Here's what we're seeing. And I will retake those videos 10 times because I have to make sure every statistic is correct. Cause I'm not trying to be fake news, especially with that many followers. And it's just, it feels like such a big responsibility to me and it frustrates me that people in the mainstream with an even bigger platform are so flippant with, uh, what they're willing to lie about. Essentially. They're so
0: careless, right? Yeah. When you go out and somebody calls you to the carpet on one of your stats on something that you've made an allegation of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what does that feel like when you read it? You're, cause, cause you get the same mention. So anybody who's on social media gets the same thing that you get. You just have, um, you know, a thousand times more, a hundred thousand times more than they do. Uh, and, and I have a small version of what that looks like. What is the feeling when someone calls you to the carpet on something, whether you know you're right or not, or whether you prove it right. I mean, what is that kind of, that gut instinct? Um, you know, are, are you an angry? Are you a, did I mess this up? Like where, where's your kind of your emotional reaction to it and initially? Obviously you can always come back to it, but.
1: My emotional reaction is, have you gone out and seen this with your own two eyes? Because I have. Because I've gone and spoken to the people who are dealing with the horrible economy.
0: So you feel very confident when somebody comes and challenges you. Absolutely. It's, it's time to go to war.
1: Absolutely. I remember I was doing this debate with this uh, liberal guy named Destiny. We we're talking about COVID-19 and he was trying to throw all these statistics at me. And I was like, I'm sorry, were you at all of the rallies where people were crying because they lost their jobs and they couldn't feed their kids? Were you there when the uh, salon owner, Shelley Luther in Dallas, was arrested because she had the audacity right. to open up her business? Because I was. because I I went and I saw all of that. And I think that there is something uh, very important, especially with journalists, right? Um, when it comes to going and... Uh, Bringing that human aspect to a story because it's one thing to watch a clip online or read an article, but it's another thing entirely to see the person experiencing that emotion of what they're going through, whether it's an arrest because of an in- injustice, whether it's, uh, you know, the anger of a lot of the people from January 6th, because I was at that event as well. Like, that's why I like being at these events because nothing pisses me off more than talking heads who will sit there all day long and tell me how I should feel about things. I'm like, no, you're not going to tell me. the american people who are living through this are going to tell me what they're experiencing and then i will have the privilege of relaying to other people how they're feeling so this is not my opinion this is what's happening on the ground it's not my opinion um and and like i said the average journalist it's all opinion based nowadays they're all reading off of government propaganda statistics and um yeah it's just it's uh it's a job i take very seriously like i said
0: I dig it. And there's a lot of responsibility in that. That used to be a thing that journalists always knew, that they have a special place, and if they lose that credibility, it's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't seem to be the the concern of some of the the folks that we see in MSNBC or, I know. or ABC or CBS or any of the mainstream stuff that I grew up with, which was always the news. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the news anymore. Now it's it's talking points, it seems like.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's not even talking points either. It's this like it's actively lying. I mean, what else would you be able to call a journalist standing in front of a burning dumpster fire in 2020 saying that this is a fiery but mostly peaceful can you protest. imagine doing like, that
0: can you imagine looking behind you and hearing people like burning stuff and smashing things <laughs> and, and then just right, being like yeah you're, peaceful. you're like guys this is <laughs> this is fine
1: it's like yeah we're standing here but if you actually look at the majority of the city in the suburbs 90 percent of everything else is fine guys. Right. why
0: are you standing in front of the fire then yeah because that's the newsworthy thing obviously
1: you know it's it's funny too because border journalists will do the same thing they will go and this is my favorite thing in the world
0: we're gonna get to the border like right now i want to
1: i love it when democratic officials go and stand in front of the wall the portion of the border that's secure and say there is no border crisis here as you can see there's nobody here right
0: there's a 25 foot piece of steel that is blocking human beings from coming in and we're fine
1: it's like the border's so secure right now and i'm like why don't you go stand like a mile down where there's a, a huge opening there's people walking in maybe try that instead
0: so you recently went down um tell people where you went if you don't mind and then uh we're gonna chat about sort of what it looked like on the ground to you you obviously spent time in las cruces las cruces is only 40 Mm -hmm. miles away from the mexican border Mm -hmm. so this is not a foreign area to you nope and in fact el paso looks a lot like El las cruces right
1: yeah looks Um, like mexico actually
0: (laughs) (laughs) it, it actually does um where specifically were you kind of focusing your reporting on? And then, you know, what kind of stuff were you seeing that is not being reported on in least mainstream?
1: Sure. So I have been to the border in Eagle pass in Yuma, Arizona, in El Paso Eagle pass. I was there quite a bit just because that's such an interesting crossing point because Mm -hmm. you have the Rio Grande right there and you'll just watch the migrants cross over all day. Sometimes they drown there. It's not a good area to be in. And I've heard some crazy stories from national guard there. Um, but the border was really interesting to me because, like I said, if I see something in the in the media that is questionable, I'm like, let me go see this for myself. And so with the border crisis, I was seeing the numbers of 2.7 million illegal immigrants crossing in the fiscal year of 2022. So that was a record high number. We have had That's also
0: unfathomable, like the number yeah. of human beings. Like we can't picture that.
1: It's absolutely insane. And so I was like, I got to go see this for myself. That seems kind of crazy. So my first stop was in Eagle Pass. And um, because I had gone down there so many times, I actually had some National Guardsmen that were willing to talk to me on um, one of them on record, actually. We made him kind of anonymous, but he he wore his uh, National Guard attire, outfit, uh, Uniform. Uniform. Thank you. Like, <laughs> I think that's the girl word for that, but yeah, uniform. Thank <laughs> Outfit you. Outfit is
0: the girl word for uniform. <laughs> I take it.
1: <laughs> so he was telling me, uh, you know, and uh, keep in mind, guys, this is in Texas. Okay. So Roma, Texas is basically cartel run. The cartel owns that area. National Guard's like, yeah, don't go over there because there's gunfights every single night. Uh, National Guardsman actually uh, gave me this photo of... A man, the cartel, dipped his head in acid, so it's just a clean skull. They crossed into the Texas side of the border and they dropped the body off as an intimidation tactic. That's something that National Guard is seeing quite often down there. On top of that, there's abandoned children.
0: How many is, what is quite often? Are we talking um, monthly?
1: i would say yeah the cartel runs that area so regarding you know dead bodies they're dropping as intimidation tactics i'm not going to give you a solid number on that one because i'm not sure how often they're doing that specifically sure but in regards of shootouts uh dangerous situations the cartel smuggling drugs children humans take your pick that's happening every single day. The cartel runs that area. So National Guard had told me that in the Eagle Pass area. And then we go to Yuma. In Yuma, the illegal immigrants are usually crossing from midnight to 6 a.m. because it's so hot over there. You can actually go and there is a big opening on the Cocoa Paw Reservation. And I believe what it is with that is the... Like the Indians who own that reservation don't want the well built there. So there's a big opening. And so you can watch the cartel or human smugglers. You'll see um, vehicles driving the stop. And then all of a sudden, like a group of 50 to 100 illegal immigrants just kind of emerge from these rocks. And then they start running into the United States. And so in Yuma, you will see two to 500 people crossing per night. And they're just walking right into the U.S. Some of them don't want to wait to get processed. So they just run straight into the country. Um, This is happening every single night in Yuma. Now, we just had the expiration of Title 42 Mm -hmm. and I went to El Paso for that one. And covering this was interesting because as somebody who has been to the border and has seen what has been happening under Joe Biden, it was really funny to me to see the media be like, oh, the border crisis, it's so crazy, it's so bad. And I'm like, yeah, bro, this has been happening for like the past two years. They're acting
0: like it's the first moment that we've seen a bunch of people sleeping on the streets in El Paso and that that there's all the, that they've, you know, expanded beyond the shelter capabilities. Mm Mm-hmm but that's not the case.
1: Yeah, and I even had beef with Greg Abbott because he was trying to launch, uh, you know, this program where he was like, we're bringing in the National Guard, we're putting up barbed wire in areas where migrants are crossing, and I'm like, hey, Greg, uh, this has been happening for the past two years. Where was the barbed wire then? Why is it that whether it's in the right or the left wing, when it comes to our officials, it really does seem like until the public or the media applies pressure and starts highlighting an issue, then they're like, oh, let me come in and fix this. I'm not saying that Greg Abbott has completely abandoned our border but he could have been doing a lot more and it did take the media's focus on the expiration of title 42 for him to be like oh we're putting up barbed wire We're, we're fixing this problem but there have already been millions of people who have crossed into texas and the funny thing about title 42 that a lot of people um Uh, probably didn't hear about. And the reason why we saw such a big surge of migrants before the expiration is because under Title 42, migrants could be uh, expelled from the U.S., deported, and they could keep recrossing over and over and over again. But now they're going to be crossing over under Title 8, which means they could potentially be deported and potentially have to wait up to five years before seeking asylum again. So we saw, I believe, in the last weeks of April, 60,000 illegal immigrants cross over in just those last few weeks of April. The three days prior to the expiration of Title 42, we saw over 10,000 people crossing every single day. We've already had millions crossing in since Joe Biden has taken office because he did run on amnesty for illegal immigrants. He did run on, you know, the United States essentially being open to everybody. And we have seen these same policies in sanctuary cities like New York, So after El Paso, after going and watching the expiration, which funny enough, while I was over there as well, Customs and Border Patrol officials were trying to shut me down from recording um, them bringing in illegal immigrants on the buses. Uh, There are some great people in CBP. There's also some pretty bad people who cover up what's going on, who will take bribes from the cartel, if you guys might you know, wonder how, how are a lot of these illegal immigrants getting through these checkpoints? Uh, Because in Texas, when you're at the border, oftentimes, uh, you know, if you have a janky vehicle, I had one when I was working at the border. So I would get janky
0: vehicle. Yeah.
1: So, oh my gosh, because (laughs) I'm a woman and Asian, uh, I crashed my car like 58 times and it was just so beat up. And so it looked like a car you would smuggle a bunch of Mexicans in, okay? Not that there's even Mexicans crossing the border. It's so funny because people are like, oh, these Mexicans are coming in. I'm like, bro, they're Venezuelan. They're Honduran. They're Ecuadorian. They're from... Ukraine. They're from Pakistan. Yeah. They're They're from. They're from various parts of Africa. Like I've never, I actually have never met a person from Mexico crossing the border into the United States, funny enough, but from everywhere else I've seen people crossing over. And I have friends that live in Mexico and they are saying like, even the Mexican nationals over there are pissed off with the immigrants coming into their cities. And there are cartels that are coming in and like cleaning up the illegal immigrants off the streets with a lot deadlier tactics Than we would use in the United States.
0: It makes sense that there would be a frustration in the even the stop points. Mm -hmm. It's like watching uh, somebody bring a caravan through and then just trash, like, you know, trash the park and then move on. And if you left that over and over again, because the cartels are running a business, Mm -hmm. they have a vested interest in keeping at least the nations that are the stop points somewhat happy.
1: Yeah, it's exactly because, you know, oftentimes, too, with the Mexican officials, they are working with the cartels. Sometimes even U.S. officials are working with the cartels. That is a sad reality of it. And like I said, sometimes the cartels do pay off CBP agents to say, hey, uh, this this vehicle with the, you know, 10 migrants in the back is coming through. Maybe just look the other way. And sometimes they get through. And again, this is coming from National Guard sources who have seen this within National Guard, seen this within Customs and Border Patrol. So again, I'm not trying to say they're all bad. There are some great people in all of these organizations who truly care. But just like with the FBI or, you know, various parts of the federal government, there's also really bad people who are taking advantage of the system. Sure. So um,
0: you, you guys were getting blocked. Uh, your cameras were. I saw you were down there with Owen. Is it Owen Schreier? Is that
1: Owen Schreier? Yeah. Um
0: mm-hmm. So you're down there filming. He's hilarious and very combative. <laughs> yeah.
1: Very, very.
0: Was he always like that? You must have known him beforehand.
1: Oh, absolutely. Owen will go and tell you to your face that you're a corrupt government official and you're committing treason. And the <laughs> and he
0: just he just enjoys doing that. It he, looks like.
1: Yeah, he, he loves, you know, he really loves taking it to the man. And so he was there. And it's funny because my tactics a little bit different where this woman is trying to shut me down. And I'm and I just like very calmly. I'm like, ma'am, ma'am, uh, why are you trying to shut down the American people from seeing what's going on here? You guys are bringing illegal immigrants into the country and I'm trying to show the American people what you guys are doing. And then Owen- That's the
0: calmer than you are approach.
1: Yeah, and then Owen's tactic is, why are you letting illegal right. immigrants into the country? This is treason. I can't believe the American taxpayers are about to pay for this. And people love He's that. He's the
0: guy that's screaming, getting like dragged off by security. Yeah, exactly. And like still getting his point done. And you're the kind of more, you're de-escalating and saying it calmly, but still- it's still poignant
1: yeah I like I like to do it that way because and um it, I learned this because when I was in East Palestine actually Pete Buttigieg's press secretary because I confronted Pete Buttigieg and I was like hey homie right. why did it take you uh, almost a did month to get him, here <laughs> yeah not not in the video but um his press secretary was like you're being so aggressive right now and so I calmly was like How am I being aggressive?
0: Oh no, you went. Yeah, that's the best. Do you want some more?
1: No, I'm 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 good. Thank you. (laughs) But um,
0: they they came and tried to ask you to to shut it down. I assume because they don't want to answer these questions either.
1: Yes. Yeah. I'll I'll, um I'll talk about East Palestine. Let me finish up border stuff real fast. So. After El Paso, I was like, okay, cool. So uh, this is nothing new. The media is pretending that the immigration crisis is really bad right now for the expiration of Title 42. But guess what? The migrants circumvented this and they already came across the border and they're still coming across the border because the border's wide open. Right. Let's go see where they end up. So I made my way to New York and I had a whistleblower who actually worked for two different organizations. And the first time he blew the whistle was last year. He was working for MVM Inc. This was a an what organization, the, what the organization called MVM Inc.
0: M-V-M-I-N-C.
1: Yes. Okay. So this organization had received uh, $140 million in federal funding from the Biden administration. And my whistleblower came forward with documents that basically were telling employees like, hey, uh, guys, when we are transporting migrant children throughout the United States of America, let's make sure that we are actually checking the IDs of the adults that we're handing them off to. So what he exposed there was that this federally funded company was taking migrant children and basically giving them to random adults throughout the United States that may or may not have been related to them. They don't know. So he worked for that company. And then after that, he was like, I can't work with the kids anymore. So he made his way to New York. And he actually then uh, worked in management at the largest migrant hotel in New York City. So this is a story that I just broke two weeks ago. Right. They were upwards or... Up to 5,000 illegal immigrants that are currently at this hotel, The Row NYC. It's a block away from Times Square. Previously, rented rooms out for upwards of $500 a night. Many of the migrants were telling my whistleblower that they could see the ball drop from their room. That when they come here, uh, a lot of them are giving birth. They're given a free ride to the hospital, free transportation, free health care, free car seats, free cribs, anything that they need, laundry service, housekeeping. They're given that hotel room. Uh, He brought forth incident reports of 10 to 14 year olds that are getting drunk in this hotel because their parents will just check them out or check out and leave them there and be like, "Uh, we'll be back in a week. They'll leave their kids at this hotel. Um, Machetes have been swung at my whistleblower and various other employees because a lot of these migrants sometimes do get violent. And when these migrants are violent, there's uh, cases of domestic abuse. Let's say the migrants, NYPD is never called, ICE is never called, DHS is never called. It's always give them a different hotel room. And what's happening is oftentimes these migrants are then given two separate hotel rooms and they're going back and forth between them in the city of New York. And the taxpayers are paying for all of this. Um, just to run through some numbers here. Um, the Federation of American Immigration Reform had put out their own report, and they speculate that just for the year of 2023, it's going to cost the New York taxpayers upwards of $10 billion to house all of these illegal immigrants. Billion oh. with a B billion. Over 65,000 have already made their way to the city of New York since last spring. Uh, at the beginning of this year, Eric Adams signed a $275 million contract just to house a couple thousand of them. I believe it was like maybe in the range of five to 7,000 migrants. That's about a budget of $55,000 per illegal immigrant. Uh, 50% of New York hotels are currently filled with illegal immigrants right now. And more hotels don't want to get into the sheltering business because, uh, spoiler alert, guys, we got some inside look at the Row Hotel and and these migrants are absolutely trashing the rooms um, on top of that eric adams because he's a sanctuary city which means that if the illegal immigrants go to these areas they don't really have to fear deportation they can live their american dream while uh, you know circumventing the law essentially for free for free. Yeah, they get, like I said, the free housing, the free healthcare. They can utilize IDNYC, which is New York's program, where regardless of immigration status, you can go and apply for a government ID and you can use that ID to go apply for employment. You can go and be a part of New York's affordable housing program. You can utilize public services. You can even open a bank account at select institutions with this ID. Um, So these migrants are getting everything for free, all in the taxpayer's dime. Uh, Billions of dollars, uh, over a billion has already been spent to shelter these migrants and eric adams is in a state of emergency right now not only is the city actually in a state of emergency but eric adams himself has no idea what he's doing i mean he has just proposed potentially putting adult migrants in um school gymnasiums where children are actively present Uh, on top of that um he just I believe on Monday came out with a press conference saying, yeah, we have to spend 4 billion on illegal immigration. So why don't we put it back into the pockets of New Yorkers and uh, go ahead and house the migrants in your private residences guys. Right. So that's what's happening in New York.
0: How, what is the end game? Like you're looking at that. You're, you're obviously very sharp. You're, you're walking around, you're talking to people on the street as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What in the actual hell are they going to do? And how is that marketable as a elected official? to their constituents
1: it's not the new yorkers are pissed off they're very upset because what's happening now that new york city and the times square area is overrun these migrants are being bust into the suburbs and there are various suburbs of new york and various um districts, I guess, that are suing to stop Eric Adams from bussing these migrants to their area. So it's a big battle. A lot of people are very upset. I mean, are they upset. just bussing and
0: dropping them off? Is that what you're saying?
1: Um, I think they're, yeah, I think they're trying to like utilize emergency shelters or like I said, the school gymnasiums and Eric Adams is like, oh, we're just going to put these migrants here. And then this, the various cities are like, no, you're not. And so it's this big back and forth. And, um, you know, the New Yorkers are pissed, but it's just like, <sighs> liberals are really their own worst enemy, right? Because I even uh, interviewed a store owner. He was an immigrant himself. Uh, Row Hotel's here. His business is right here. Okay. So he's right there. Block away from Times Square. So this should be a tourist hotspot. Mm-hmm. He said that business for all of the restaurants, all of the souvenir shops, all of the various businesses in the area, down 50 to 80 percent. Because if you go to this area, you will see Venezuelans in the street. You will see all of the migrants right there. They're stealing from some of the local businesses. Uh, like I said, you know, not all of them are bad, but uh, some of them are committing violence. Uh, again, my whistleblower who has worked in immigration services in the United States. Like he himself has worked under Customs and Border Patrol. He's worked with the kids. He's worked, um, you know, with the city of New York housing the migrants. He's watched the process of the U.S. government funding the transportation of migrants from the border further into the U.S., which, funny enough, Customs and Border Patrol try to say isn't happening. And because of new Twitter, they got brutally fact checked. And um, yeah, Twitter was like, actually. Uh, this was
0: community notes or something.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. It was so beautiful to see. It was like, um, yeah, I Actually, the federal government is giving money to the charities and then the charities are busing the migrants throughout the United States of America. And that's what happens, right? That's how the federal government circumvents responsibility is because, uh, for example, with my New York story, uh, the New York Post also wrote about the piece, and the city of New York, I guess, had responded and said, oh, he never worked here. We have no idea about this, this whistleblower, right, to discredit the story. And the, re- the reason that they can circumvent responsibility is because the city of New York contracts out a company that contracts out a company that deals with the migrants.
0: Cutouts after cutouts.
1: Exactly. So technically, the city of New York hasn't hired anybody. What are you talking about?
0: Right. Well, the FBI does the same thing. And you're starting to see that in many, many circles, people are waking up to the idea that the things that the government cannot do, they're willing to outsource. Mm-hmm. And then the things that these companies and contractors know would be valuable to the government, they just do it, and then they know they can go get paid on the after end, whether that's infiltration of, of uh, places that should be First Amendment protected and so on. They're, they're more than happy to uh, engage in the sort of cutout behavior, the sort of contractor behavior that yeah. ends up, it would otherwise not be acceptable, and it gives plausible deniability, it's coverage.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I went through a period of being really black-pilled about the state of the U.S. Tell people what black-pilled
0: is. I had to learn about this recently.
1: It's like when you you are just like, everything sucks. What's the point of anything? The government sucks, and they want us all to die.
0: (laughs) It's a hopeless position. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's just like, everything's so bad. Just start the rapture, guys, which I'm still at that point. But, you know, it's just because it's like, I don't like it here. It's scary. I
0: I tell people that uh, every day I go to bed defeated. Every morning I wake up willing to fight. Does that... uh, that seems to be the same sort of attitude. There's a lot of people that feel that way, I think. that
1: I think so. I think so. And that's why it's important, too, I think, for us to verbalize these feelings ourselves um, because I think, like, with commentators, too, when people, you know, start following you or looking up to you, it's like, oh, you're great, you're a fighter. And it's like, nah, bro, sometimes I get really discouraged about the state of the country because on top of the border crisis, I was also covering the fentanyl and drug crisis in the United States. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, I like seeing crazy stuff and I heard San Francisco was insane. So last year, um, You know, while taking a break from the border after the after covid died down, I almost lost my entire YouTube channel because of that, because the entirety of 2020 to 2022, I was like, yeah, this vaccine doesn't work and it's killing people. Almost lost my entire YouTube channel from that one, Um,
0: which is an income source.
1: Yeah. But it's like, you know, it is what it is. And so yeah, for two years. It's funny because YouTube backtracked on that, just like they backtracked on whether or not you could say there was election um, interference in 2020 or election fraud, right? YouTube slowly backtracking on everything. Um, but I was covering the fentanyl crisis, um, jumping back to that. And I went to San Francisco. I, and it was shocking to me that these are the streets of the United States. And the interesting thing about San Francisco and the way that it ties to the border is it's also a sanctuary city. Mm -hmm. So if you go to San Francisco, you'll see groups of Guatemalans and Hondurans and they're selling fentanyl on the street and they utilize the city's sanctuary status so that they can sell drugs and not have to worry about deportation. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So actually, the last time I was in San Francisco was kind of cool because I was walking on the street. I like that
0: you took a vacation from the border to go to San Francisco <laughs> and see more. I chaos. would call it
1: a vacation. I would just call it intense, strange curiosity just, that just I have.
0: A change the scenery.
1: Yeah, and it, it's because I'd gone to San Francisco. I'd heard it was crazy, and I was like, I got to see this for myself. And it was so shocking to me to see people slumped over at two p.m. with like a needle sticking out of their arm.
0: Have you Have you ever been to San Francisco before that? When it used to be nice? No. When you were a kid growing up, you never went there?
1: I'd never been to San Francisco in my life. And the first time I went, I was like, why are there people pooping in the street? I'm scared.
0: So you're familiar with the uh, sort of the north side of the city. There's a place called the Embarcadero. Have you seen that? The Embarcadero Plaza. There's the three big towers at kind of the end of the, the BART station. And you can walk around in the financial district like... That's where
1: maybe, maybe
0: if you go into the city and you know, there's pier 39, mm-hmm. right? It's up here at the top. And if you just kind of keep walking around on those streets, you'll mm-hmm. end up down in the financial district, which is the big downtown thing. Right. I was a kid. I used to go in there. Um, you know, this is 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. My old man used to run radio stations down there. He was the news director. It was a beautiful place to go. It was yeah. safe. It was pretty. It was really one of the coolest, neat, like just, it had a vibe that was very different than many other cities. Mm-hmm. They used to say, uh, I think, who the heck said it? It might've been Mark Twain. He said, you know. New York is a is a great pillar of uh, of American you know ingenuity. Mm-hmm. Chicago is the great American city of business. Uh, Los Angeles is a plastic constellation, which is kind of funny because Los Angeles is terrible. Uh, and San Francisco is a lady. San Francisco is not a lady anymore. She's no. like a she's like a hobo.
1: San Francisco <laughs> is a cracked out hobo now. It's so scary. It,
0: it, it's sad because you won't ever get to see that, and maybe they'll clean it up at some point. But it was such a neat, cool place. It's gone. And
1: yeah, and to the detriment of all the
0: people that live there, they voted for all that stuff. I thought they wanted it.
1: And and it's, uh, it's, you know, I did the mini documentary on San Francisco, because again, it's like, okay, let me go talk to people who are directly affected by drug addiction, right to understand how the city got so out of control. And um, I I talked to Richie Wynn, San Francisco local, former addict, Mm -hmm. who dealt with these problems himself. And he walked me through the city because he lives in the Tenderloin. He's paying thousands of dollars for rent to live on Market Street, I believe it's called. Yeah, the checks. And there's tents everywhere. There's people shooting up. There's people smoking fentanyl in the street. There's kids walking past this. It's absolutely terrifying to see the state of San Francisco um, because you have harm reduction programs over there as well. And we went to a harm reduction center. Okay, you're
0: tell us what that is because
1: I will. That I sounds will.
0: like a leftist euphemism for something that it doesn't do.
1: Oh, yeah. It does the opposite of harm reduction, my friends. Imagine that. Um, so harm reduction center, right? You go to San Francisco and you say, I'm a drug addict. Please help. So they give you a box of 100 clean needles. They Good. give you a band so you can shoot up. They give you a meth pipe or a crack pipe. They give you chopsticks so you can push your crack rocks further into your pipe. They actually instructed us on how to use uh, you know, all these different tools. They give you water. They give you vitamin C so you can melt down your meth a little bit easier. Uh, they give you the pieces of foil so you can smoke your fentanyl. They give you everything that you need except for like a, a program, a sobriety program.
0: That seems nice.
1: It was shocking.
0: It's enabling.
1: And again, I made sure to go speak to former addicts who have dealt with this problem themselves and ask them, why is this problem so out of hand? And they themselves told me, It's because when you're an addict, you can't have drugs pushed in your face every single day. You're not gonna be able to stop your addiction. You can't have the city enabling you and allowing you to do drugs openly in the street because a lot of the um, funding in San Francisco is going towards helping homelessness, which actually equates to keeping people uh, dependent on the government by keeping them drugged out, by keeping them in the street. So it's absolutely horrific what's going on there. And so I discovered these harm reduction centers and I was like, what is this?
0: How many? them are there
1: they're all over the nation so i also went to philadelphia and in philly (coughs) they have this program called prevention point that's their version of um their harm reduction i got slapped in the face by a crackhead over there and i got doused in urine that was a fun trip i got very sick after that and it was because (laughs) they were you know i'm walking on the streets of philly and i was in kensington avenue and i think back on this trip and i'm like what in the world we're getting a phone call, guys. A phone call. Let me I, I think that. it's it's probably Donald Trump. He, he's got to take this, guys. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. You know, like uh, Can y'all hear the ringing? They know. We know what it's ringing? We're not sure where the ringing is coming from, guys. Okay, I think we stopped it. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, sorry, guys. We are taking a very important FBI fed phone call.
0: It's always a possibility
1: always a possibility you to know what the feds listening right now there's stop
0: there's about a hundred percent chance that the feds are listening at some point whether it be uh friends of the show or or foes of the show who are looking for us so interesting yeah you you, you put yourself on the radar when you come and talk to us but uh, you're on the radar just with what you're doing okay I know. Harm, harm reduction not called harm reduction in philly what's it called
1: Prevention point.
0: Prevention point, which actually is an encouragement point, it sounds like.
1: Yes. So yeah. this is another program that is funded by the taxpayers' millions of dollars. Funny thing about this is that, and again, I spoke to an addict, okay? Very nice man, young young dude. I'm like, hey, can I talk to you about that? What's that that you've got there? And again, I, I will go talk to any American, okay? If you are a drug addict on the street, I will still talk to you. You tell me your story, my friend. How did you get here? Who's enabling this? You tell me how you got to this point. And a lot of people are willing to talk when I was. Was in Philly, um, they are dealing right now with this trank uh epidemic and it's called the zombie drug because it's rotting their flesh. And so, a lot of them were showing me their rotting flesh and they were telling me, Oh, you know, we are injecting a combination of uh elephant or horse tranquilizer and sometimes like, like a
0: ketamine type thing.
1: I guess so. But it's like, it's crazier than that. And it's rotting their flesh, because their white blood cells can't process it. So their skin just rots. And so I'm talking to these addicts in the street, and they're telling me about what's going on. And a lot of them themselves say, yeah, the reason we're out here is because the government gives us free tents, free free meals, free health care, free needles, they let us stay out here. And why wouldn't we stay out here?
0: think about how desperate a human being you'd have to be that that sounds like a good like you live in a nice apartment i'm sure mm. you've got um you know food you have I access have to you, you have a shower yeah yeah and and you have access to you know no one's going to kick in your door on a bed you at least you have a physical door there like yeah. if you imagine like just like when like screw it i'm just going to go down on cedar chavez i'm going to pop up a tent and that's where i'm going to hang out in and front I mean, of some guy's you could. business you totally could here
1: yeah you can in austin now um, I'm, I'm far
0: enough outside as you experience driving out here that we're we're Yeah, We're a long march for the the druggies to come out to bug us.
1: You're a good ways away. And uh, moving to Austin actually was another part of why I was really passionate about speaking out against democratic policy, because I moved to Austin right at the end of its, I would say, peak, right? What was the year? It was 2018, so right before they passed the homeless ordinance. Yeah, but it
0: was already over the hill. I I left in 2016, and and Austin left with me in some ways. Interesting. Because even in that time, and so Mm -hmm. this is very, very relevant— Um, We lived downtown. We Mm -hmm. lived on Cesar Chavez. We lived on the east side, about half a mile away from 35. Mm -hmm. So for folks who know Austin, we're talking about there's a little public library right there. There's a homeless shelter. There's a food kitchen, which always had military age males at it. And then- You're talking about
1: uh, Arch?
0: Yeah. Well, the uh, Arch is there. That's up on on 7th or 8th Street.
1: Okay. So that's on,
0: on the other side of the freeway. Okay. in in, right right, on the east side okay i know what you're talking about um we're living in this building which was really the first residential commercial co-op now there's everything out there there's a whole foods there was nothing there by the way the train station over on east 5th used to be a vacant lot in fact that was where my wife and i like walked home the first time that we were ever like out on a date very Mm -hmm. funny um but that apartment building started getting all the we had to turn off all the outlets on the outside of the building because we were using them for things like leaf blowers and you know plugging in different mm-hmm. kind of equipments to maintain the building. Homeless people were just setting up camps underneath in the bushes, like outside of our window. Literally, we're oh, on the second gosh. floor, which was the you know there was a garage there. Yeah, the second floor is where we lived, and there were people that were smoking meth or you know doing heroin oh, directly gosh. underneath our window, eight feet outside of our window. And there's you know bushes and trees and stuff they could climb on. There were cars that would go by, they could park yeah. there. So I started finding these hype kits and it was like, you know, sterile water, Mm -hmm. which I don't know where they got hospital grade sterile water, but they did. They had multiple needles. They'd be in a little baggie. They'd have a little syringe. They'd have little, we have prevention
1: programs here in Austin
0: and they're the exact, they were leaving them in our bushes. So I would go and clean them up and you're like, Oh God, there's, there's, there's needles everywhere.
1: See, well, I was here then for the homeless ordinance being passed. And
0: that was the next step of death. We we were the first step of it. Obviously you saw the second.
1: Everything just became more apparent and prominent than at that point because i was still i was living on riverside at that point too so i mean riverside it was one of the worst Areas um, after they did pass that homeless ordinance, but when I lived there, like you didn't see tent cities, you didn't see the homeless there as prominently as you. But do that's now.
0: walking distance from downtown, and they literally spread. I, yeah. I watched them go down past Rainy Street, yeah, into the overpasses, and you would have been the next stop on the chain, just on the other side of the river.
1: Oh gosh! And
0: there's nice footbridges to get across the river now too.
1: Thank, yeah, it's thankfully. so true. It's so true. <laughs> but um, yeah. So Philly, they have their own prevention point program. Yep. Uh, this addict himself, he he tells me about their needle exchange program. Yeah. So if you go and you turn in dirty needles, uh, per this guy, he said they'll give you two clean ones back. So they'll give you double the clean needles uh, that you bring in of dirty needles. This uh, is
0: like the uh, the guys collecting um, aluminum cans, yeah, exactly for money. But they're collecting needles to get more drugs.
1: Yeah, and so when you go walk down Kensington Avenue, it was really shocking. And I think back on this trip, and I'm like, I would never go there again because I didn't understand the danger of the environment, which you know, it's like my ignorance is a blessing and a curse because it it makes me not scared to go into environments and go report on them, but also... Like
0: it makes me scared for you when you when you're <laughs> telling me away. some of these things because I used to sit in, in these neighborhoods with a gun and a badge in a car and
1: i was just like walking around yeah with and you're camera. marching
0: around like all like 115 pounds of oh, you or whatever gosh. and and you're in there like picking fights with drug addicts that have no not like, me the, me and same the drug addicts
1: were cool all right drug addicts are actually chill people because they're drugged out they're too cracked out they're too focused on their drugs to care it was the white liberal that riled up the drug addicts and like sicked them on me so what happened with that is uh you gotta tell this. Prevention point, right? This is happening. And uh, I love filming in public because it's my right to do so. Mm -hmm. Kensington Avenue, very scary. There are needles lining the entire street. You have people like, you know, slumped over doing drugs. You have drug dealers on every street. Um, The first day I was there, I was talking to some addicts who were talking to me about their lesions and their sores and how they got there. I watched a woman, you know, uh, who was teaching me how to shoot up fentanyl. I got that on camera. Go watch that video, guys. It's just it was interesting to me. And so as I'm sitting there talking to them, uh, there's two of them. And his friend starts laughing. And I had another friend with me. And he was like, you know why those vans keep pulling up behind you guys, right? And she was like, no, why? It was two of us females. Oh, not the smartest situation. And he goes, well, sometimes those vans come and they just scoop up women off the street. So you guys should be careful. We left after that. So that was something that we were told by these guys on the street. And we were like, okay. And then the next day we see prevention point. Uh, we had brought some muscle with us at that point, And I see these guys spilling out buckets of dirty needles. I'd never seen anything like it on a public street. I He's was like pouring them out, pouring them into like bigger biohazard. Okay. Uh, bins. But it was buckets and buckets and buckets. And I was like, that's wild. Like, that seems really dangerous. Like, I'm just going to film that. Went with no intention to expose anything. Just like, that's cool. Like, I'm just going to film it. I'm just filming the buckets. So nobody's faces are in the video. Mm -hmm. Like I said, when I am in these situations, um, like, oftentimes addicts are either too spaced out to even know they're being filmed or I'm talking with them y- you know it's funny because people will be like oh you're exploiting you're exploiting these people how dare you and I'm like actually I'm showing the streets that democratic politicians are allowing to prosper and are allowing our children to walk down every day sure so if anybody is exploiting anyone as the Democrats that are keeping these people addicted on drugs and addicted on these government systems but anyways that's another story so <laughs> I'm filming this and then this white liberal of course it's always the white liberal comes in and she's like um excuse me you can't Film here, and I was like, "Um, actually, I can, because this is a public street." <laughs> and she was like, "No, you're violating their HIPAA. You're violating HIPAA laws by filming their faces." And oh. I was like, "Okay." Um, if you're gonna do drugs in public, I'm gonna film it. Okay. Also, this is a public street, and I'm not filming anybody's faces, I'm filming those needles. She makes a huge issue out of it, and then all these crackheads start getting riled up. One of them comes, slaps me in the face, another one comes and smashes my camera, tries to steal my equipment. The security guard there as well takes my smashed equipment, refuses to give it back to me. Uh, she starts yelling at me because she's like, Get out of here, you're making everybody mad. And then at that point, when you tell me that I can't film something, it's on. Yeah, I was like, Okay, okay. You know what? I was going to get my clip and leave, but now we're going to make a big story out of this. And so uh, the only time people have ever acted that way to me filming them is when they are doing illegal activities. I actually got mobbed in Austin uh, by a group of 12 I got beat up by them and it was because I was filming Antifa committing illegal activities. So I got beat up for that one. But I have no regrets because maybe you shouldn't be committing illegal activities for me to go and report on. Um, so that's not the first time I've gotten beat up. It is what it is. You know, even in I didn't even realize I got slapped in the face until I watched the footage back. Because, like I said, the adrenaline had just kicked in yeah. at that point And I was just filming. I was like, I'm in front of a prevention point. They're spilling needles everywhere. They're enabling the addicts right now. I was here just filming what was happening and this is what's going on. This woman's trying to shut me down. Boom, slapped in the face. I was like, as you could see, I am now being attacked. Like <laughs> so that happened in Philly.
0: It's so gutsy. <laughs>
1: it's dumb. It, it is
0: dumb, but it, and 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 we talked about that privately. That I really want you to have security just You're for, like, just be, just because You and
1: half of America.
0: Oh <laughs> well, yeah, we just want you to do it. And uh and uh. actually I talked to Garrett Boyle last night, so my audience knows Garrett. Garrett is a you know, six foot two, two hundred and seventy five pound combat veteran, former nice. FBI, you know, former SWAT guy and, and defensive tactics guy, mm-hmm. and uh, and he said he'd be once again, he's more than happy to join you and do some of these things. Thank you, Garrett. It, he also looks like a homeless dude because he's got a huge beard and long hair, and he that's look, important. He got to blend in, hoodie and greasy if you need it. Uh, Perfect. Yeah, nobody. Will, he's got you know tattoos and all that, but uh, it it is it's it's disconcerting, and someone's got to do it. Someone's got to go out there and do that. You've taken on the burden of it. I think it's really fun. What other what are the yeah. wild things have you you got beat up by Antifa? You've been slapped by crack faces or crackheads. <laughs> you're, you're down um, at the border. You mentioned that the, there was a border patrol official. I, I want to circle back to something you said earlier. A border patrol official was trying to keep you from filming, mm. and you were resisting that, and that obviously got you going. We didn't finish that story. Do you want to kind of tap on that for a second?
1: Sure. I mean, funny enough, she's the same person. It's always women. It's always women every single freaking time. <laughs>
0: Why is it always women? I don't know
1: because they're the ones dumb enough to try to stop journalists from filming the truth about what's going on. Because and it's funny too because they always try to bring the more emotional side in. Like when it's male border patrol, they're they're just they're just kind of rude about it. They're like, "You can't film here. Get out of here." Right. This
0: is our policy. No more. Yeah, they're very
1: stern. But the women are like, "Please." The, the woman that was trying to shut me down was like, "Please, we're trying to protect the privacy." And I was like, man, these these people are illegal. They just broke our laws. I don't give a damn about you went their full privacy. in honor. And I was like, um, excuse me, I'm trying to do my job. And funny enough, somebody had discovered this is the same woman that tried to stop Ted Cruz from filming when he was touring a migrant oh. center in Texas. Same woman who got in front of his camera and said, excuse me, sir, you can't be filming here for the privacy. It's just like... No. Yeah.
0: What right to privacy do you have in a public place breaking American laws?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's funny. I mean, that's a
0: reasonable question, right?
1: Illegals have more uh, rights and privileges and privacy than we do as American citizens. So um, and
0: people can see all these clips on your if yes, they click the media part of your Twitter. Account, on my correct? Twitter,
1: you guys can see all so of it.
0: Your, your Twitter accounts in the show notes. So you can click below if you guys want to do that either now or, before, or after we're done um, and go and scroll and see some of this stuff. A lot of these things they've Probably seen the footage somewhere else. Yeah, because they get picked up by a lot of news outlets,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's always women. That's very funny and strange. But
1: I know, I know. I, I
0: think that segues kind of nicely. You're uh, so you're working for two different groups right now, where you work on behalf of two different groups. Turning Point USA pays your bills. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. Turning Point USA,
0: and they have you. And so we we link to that. Um, there's a you know you're listed as one of their contributors, mm-hmm. and then you contribute also to Post Millennial, yes, Andy Knows Organization,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you're writing pieces for those folks. And they've got you covering the most important news of June. What is the most important news of June?
1: Oh, I wish it was crackheads, but sadly, it's Pride Month. <laughs> I'm serious.
0: There's something very twisted about what you just said.
1: <laughs> I do, okay? At least at least the... Crackheads uh, are honest. That's what I'm saying. Drug addicts are very honest people. What Before we get off of that topic, though, at Portland, that was the other place I went to. Mm. Uh, 4 p.m., I'm walking downtown and I'm what witnessing... Year? Uh, last year. Uh, last year. Uh, again, I was covering the drug crisis and just how out of control things got over there. And I'm witnessing a drug overdose at 4 p.m. in their financial district. It's a nice area. You have people walking past in business suits. Right. Uh, this guy is just overdosing, like foaming at the mouth. And then this, this other homeless woman is trying to pickpocket him for his drugs. Oh, good. And then this cop rolls up and he's super chill. And I'm like, "It's this is the most messed up stand up of my life. He was okay, which is why I posted it. But I'm like standing there and I'm like, Hi, guys. We're in Portland. It's 4 p.m. And this guy behind me is overdosing. Um, I guess this is just normal here. And it is. Like the that citizens... used to be
0: like the classic reporter thing when something would just happen next to them.
1: Yeah. And I just did the stand up and I sent it to one of my friends and he was laughing. He was like, what is this? An episode of South Park? You got a guy overdosing behind you? I was like, this is just Portland, bro. Um, So it's funny because I'm talking to this cop. He's very open. This guy's overdosing in the background. The fire department comes. They're, you know, they're doing the whole routine with him. He was fine. He, I guess, kind of just OD'd a little bit on fentanyl, but he he ended up getting up and walking away. So maybe he was just taking a little nap. He was OK. So the fire department but he's foaming is there. and he's
0: getting pickpocketed at the same time.
1: <laughs> yeah. But then the fire department comes. And so, like, I'm conducting this interview with this police officer and the fire department like has this guy in the background. And, you know, they're like flopping him around. This and is
0: like amazing <laughs> background stuff for a stand up. It stand-up. was
1: crazy. And we, I'm just talking to this cop and he's like, oh, yeah, this happens like three or four times in a one block radius every summer. This is nothing new. Uh, this happens all the time because actually the state of oregon decriminalized hard drugs back in 2020 um so this happens there's nothing we can do we can't take this guy to any type of center uh for rehabilitation if they don't want to go to the hospital we can't even take them to the hospital we just have to let them go and what ended up happening is the guy got up after the the fire department revived him walked off so that was portland rise up hmm
0: Rise up. Have you ever seen the movie called Bringing Out the Dead? No. I'm going to recommend it. Some of my audience, you may have seen this. If you haven't, it's one of the smaller, kind of really interesting... It's John Goodman. Mm-hmm. It's Nicolas Cage. They're running an ambulance. I want to say it's in the 90s. Um, and Ving Rames is in it. And they're running an ambulance. One of, one of the FBI paramedics that I used to know was a consultant on this. And so they're driving an ambulance, like drinking bourbon, bringing people back from the dead. And at this one moment, uh, Ving Rhames goes in with, uh, with Nick cage and they've got this guy who's OD'd and he's supposedly a DJ. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're like, he's, you know, he he's dead. And they go in they check it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, it's a, it's a heroin overdose. So prior to fentanyl, that was the drug of choice that would knock people down. And so Ving Rhames does this whole thing. He makes all the crackheads, all the, or all the druggies hold hands and start praying, and he was like, "Rise up, rise up!" And he gosh. goes, "He goes, what's his name?" And they go, "I be banging." He goes, "What's his name?" And they're like, "He's a DJ. His name is I be banging." So they, they scream, "Rise up, I be banging," oh which is gosh. one of the great scenes that nobody's ever seen. But if you're a paramedic, almost everybody in the in the EMS world has seen it. Yep. The next time you see a crackhead get off the ground, you're gonna hear, "Rise up, I be banging." <laughs> it is. It, it's a special thing. Oh, gosh. And, and then you'll laugh and everybody will look at you like you're sick because you'll yeah. have this just silly moment. But that was a big thing all the way through the nineties during the heroin epidemic. Uh-huh. We're getting it back again with fentanyl
1: Yeah, uh, it's and, bad. Pe-
0: and people are just rising up off the street and some of them make it and some of them don't. Eventually they don't make it.
1: Yeah. Fentanyl is very dangerous, high death rate with that one. Uh, not good at all. It's because
0: people don't know how to dose it because it's so small.
1: Yeah. Very mic- potent drug mm-hmm. and uh, coming across our open Southern border.
0: Right, just spilling across, and they can mm-hmm. move a lot of it with very little people. Yeah. Um. So you you film filming Portland. You yeah. You you've hit all the high points. Any anywhere that's crappy? Have you gone to like Southside Chicago to go see what the drug you know, the gun gun battles look like? Or no.
1: Uh, yeah. Can you just resist like, that for a I'd rather while? not get shot. You know. I'd,
0: I'd rather you not get shot too. That's
1: why I've kind of stayed away from Chicago. Um. But I did hit Seattle a as well. So we did. Uh. I did Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Skid Row, Philadelphia, Kna. Um, What's Kna? Kensington Avenue God, in okay. Philadelphia.
0: Yeah. and is like local.
1: Mm, that's what they call it. So um, those were the five <laughs> points that I hit. In New York, I've touched on a little bit, um, but that's been more migrant type stuff. And um, yeah, I've heard in, I think it's in Boston, they have Methadone Avenue or something like that. People keep telling me to go there. I, I can
0: probably set you up with some people in Boston to, to, so, to give you a walk around there.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of our folks.
0: who Who's telling you what to do? Who's directing your reporting? Uh, if anybody, or is it just your emotion and your spur of the moments?
1: My curiosity, my curiosity is what's directing it. It's really cool to work with the organizations that I do because they trust my instinct. And they basically say, yeah, go report on whatever you want. And it's been very successful so far. And like I said, my whole tactic is go report on what nobody else is touching. And um, you have
0: to earn that with these kind of people.
1: Definitely. But I also think, too, the tactic of going and reporting on what nobody else is, is immediately a success because people are going to be shocked by the footage because Mm -hmm. they're going to be like, wait. San Francisco looks like this. And you know, the San Franciscans and the thing too, is because there is local news that will cover this stuff, but they get tired of covering it because they get tired of getting attacked. They get tired of having to cover the same thing over and over again. And so um, what I try to do is because I have more of a national audience is go to these places, even if something has been covered and be like expose my audience, which like I said, is people from all over the United States and show like, hey, this is what various parts of the country look like. And oftentimes we are seeing the same pattern of democratic progressive loving inclusive diverse politicians time and time again uh being the people who are enabling this type of destructive behavior
0: it's almost like you could predict the failure based on the previous experience and performance
1: it's crazy it's crazy let me tell you i just it's you know you see a d next to the name you know that your stands for destruction i don't know
0: i love it uh, speaking of destruction we are now in the month of June, I alluded to it earlier, you have a new task from your from your uh, lovely employers and they wanna cover the big story that the left would shove down our throats and make us accept. So what do they where do they have you going? What do they have you doing? And then where can people sort of like expect to see your next month worth of reporting? What's that gonna be involved in?
1: I usually don't say where I'm going preemptively just because, you know, let's
0: t- let's talk about topic. How yeah, about that?
1: we'll do topic. And then we have um, to send a bodyguard with you. <laughs> definitely. We will be covering pride this month. One of my least favorite topics because it's just, it gets very degenerate. It's not my favorite thing in the world. I went to pride uh, in DC last year and it was like a gigantic, like marijuana and alcohol fest with children present and it's half like a street naked. orgy. Yeah. It was like half naked adults, like grinding on each other in the middle of the day. And I was like, mom, I'm scared. Please help. I don't want to be here.
0: It's 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 really gross, but it, it's funny. It, like, do you ever wonder why they call it pride? Have you ever reflected on that?
1: One of the seven deadly sins.
0: It, it is. It's the original sin though. Interesting. It, it's the sin. It's the original sin is the sin of pride. It's It's when man rivals to be that like, like God, mm-hmm. uh, not to get super religious on it, but I grew up in a religious background. And so mm-hmm. you look at that and you go, these people now, are taking something that they claim is an immutable characteristic. You yeah. can't choose to be trans. You can't choose to be gay. And, and I'm more or less okay with that assertion. So why are you proud of it?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that there was this small period of time where it was like, okay, we passed gay marriage and maybe there was like a couple of months where everyone was kind of chilling. But then, you know, corporations and Hollywood went full throttle and it was like, we have to put a gay person in every advertisement and every TV show. That's right. And then it kept progressing and progressing and progressing. And so it's like we gave an inch and they took 58,000 miles and now we're living in a, a period of time where if you say that a man is not a woman, you're a bigot and that just you, you deserve to get punched in the face or get your entire career destroyed over that.
0: And they're more than happy to come and destroy you. You grew yeah. up more or less in a world where I imagine in, even in, in college, like you didn't see it when you were being homeschooled, but um, being gay was, if not celebrated, it was certainly accepted. Would you agree?
1: So it was so accepted. I mean, I have never, and it's just like, it's so ridiculous that it's like, oh, gay people are just being genocided the, every single day. They're not day. put upon at this point. Yeah. It's they like were nobody, a little bit when I was a kid. Okay, yeah, I agree with. I believe that, you know, we, we, I'm sure there was a time like from the 80s to the 90s where people were like more put off by it. I mean, I don't even know if that, like, it was slowly accepted over time. Like, by the early 2000s, during my entire, I guess, childhood, it's, mm-hmm. I, I never experienced, you know, nobody cared. Ever. It
0: used to be almost like a social death sentence. That's how bad it was. And certainly in the fifties and the sixties mm-hmm. and so on, you know, people, the, the, the idea of being in the closet, like, I don't even think you grew up with people being in a closet. It was just a matter of when they were going to c- come out, not if they were going to come out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because it, even if you were gay, you were openly acting gay and people just Everyone knew, knew it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and nobody, it's just, I don't know. It's ridiculous to see where we're at in the modern day. And, um, Yeah, I'm kind of the same way, too, because I am a Christian woman, but I am also more libertarian in my politics. So I'm like, okay, you want to get married, you want the government in your business, whatever, but you shouldn't be married in the church. And also the church shouldn't be promoting um, homosexual relationships, just like they shouldn't be promoting premarital sex or any other type of sin. Like I view all sin the same way. You don't get you. You're not your sin isn't special. OK, that's right. So we shouldn't be as that might a church be the quote of the day. Yeah. It's like we shouldn't have the church and we shouldn't have all these institutions propping this up. And like I said, we really have been conquered, I feel, by the LGBTQ community. And we see that every single Pride Month when the LGBTQ flag is flying above our highest institutions in Washington, D.C., when we see the LGBTQ flag uh, flying in place of the, the you know, uh flags of other nations it really does feel like we've been conquered and we are living through a time now where you can't even speak out against this i went and i did a video and i went to sixth street and i said fellas is it gay to date a trans woman and I wanted to do this specifically to men because I wanted to break the conditioning that a lot of people have because, you know, there's this big echo chamber that trans women are women. And I was like, let's see what real men think about this. And the satisfaction I part, like that you
0: thought real men are on Sixth Street, but continue.
1: Well, <laughs> men who are honest. <laughs>
0: honest men. Honest, a little a, yeah. two beer drink, two drink. Exactly. Men in interviews. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I'm like, mm, let me go talk to the fellows and see how they're feeling about this I like because this. at the end of the day, you know, men are going to be honest. And It was one of the funniest videos I've ever done because almost every single guy was like a dick's a dick. I don't think I could get past it, even if they were super hot. Hilarious video went super viral. But the sad part about it is that a lot of the guys in the background were like, oh, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to be called homophobic or transphobic or I don't want people to come after me. But like they were brave enough to say it because they were kind of drunk. But it's also it's like it's sad that we can't say that being in a gay relationship is gay in the modern day.
0: Also, the men that are dressing as women that are, uh, you know, like the Leah Thomas types, my yeah. my wife keeps me abreast of what's going on there. And it's very weird. Mm-hmm. So um, thankfully, she keeps track of that instead of me. Oof, and she's like, you know, he's got a boyfriend. He's also done a transition. Both yeah. of them have kept, uh, you know, kept their male genitalia. It's a fetish for them. Yeah. Uh, and it's called autogynephilia. You ever heard of this? Yes. All right. So that was news to me. My wife is a mental health professional, so I'm not ashamed that I didn't know it. Uh, I'm sort of sad that you know it because it's it's only because <laughs> Twitter why, man. why in the world should you have to know that? Yeah. But there's an entire fetish of men that fantasize about themselves dressed as a woman or being a woman. And that's what gets them off. Well, dude, it's okay. bizarre. If
1: you aren't super involved in the trans LGBTQ news, which good for you. I'm, I wish I'm more I than I want to be. be. I'll say that. But the post-millennial actually just put out an article the other week where there was a trans man, trans woman, sorry. So biological man.
0: Just, yeah, help me, help me stay straight with biological.
1: So, like, let me give you an example. Uh, if Kyle took a bunch of hormones and started secreting breast milk and then try to feed his child with the breast milk, that's what was happening. That's
0: that weird guy. That's kind of, yes. uh, he looks like he's. No, no. What is this it was a white. Background? It was
1: a white dude. It was a white dude who was taking hormones, breastfeeding his child with his breast milk. And then it was found out later on that this trans woman had a cow fetish. Of course. So it's like.
0: It's it's <laughs> all weird. Like publicly sexualized fetishes, it it's seems like. It's too
1: much. It's too, it's like, you know what? If you want to be weird and you want to do your weird stuff in the bedroom, go ahead. Just, I don't want to see it. Don't get kids involved with it. That's Stop it. trying to teach our children about this stuff. It's gross. It, it, nobody needs to know about it. That's right. Yeah, it's a lot.
0: In your lifetime, you've literally seen people go from, I want to be able to live my my life the way I want to, yeah. I need you to celebrate my life in order for me to have the validation to exist. Yep. Uh, that's mental illness in a big way from in my book. And uh, I'm sorry. Absolutely. I, I, I'm glad you're out there pushing against it, especially in your age bracket. I think it's really, really important that people that are in their 20s know that uh, you don't have to get canceled, even though you've been canceled already. Um, you're uncancelable at this point in many ways because Quite you, nice. you've got people that have built infrastructure and networks. There's places like Rumble where we're streaming right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's voices that are big enough that have enough money that they can kind of give the uh, the double-barreled uh, middle finger, as Dan likes to say, yeah. to these types. And, uh, and Dan Bongino, being one of the people who knows, who, who we were just talking the other day, he mm-hmm. said, um, parallel economy. He's got a payment processor. Yeah, you know they've got their own servers for Rumble. Mm-hmm. They're building their own ad servers as well, so they're not using Google.
1: And it's sad that we've gotten to a point where you have to do that. But also it's so beneficial that we've gotten to a point where we have that now because there was a period of time where people were getting kicked out of their banks, where Mm -hmm. they didn't have access to their money. I mean, look at what happened with January 6th. A lot of people faced repercussions for being there. They were put in jail for that. They were... I mean, you know, the list of political persecution in this country goes on and on, Um, whether you have a certain religious belief or political belief and you were fired from your job, you were ostracized from your community. And then, you know, you even bring in the covid aspect of that. If you didn't want to get vaccinated, you were fired again. You were, you know, called a horrible person who didn't care about other people. And it's been really interesting to see the manipulation of language. It's a very, very successful tactic. And it's gotten us to where we are today, where people are afraid to speak common and basic truth. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, like you, you mentioned 1984 earlier, the wrong think and having basic common sense and the courage to say the truth is wrong think nowadays. And if you do that, you do risk getting fired from your job or being labeled a Nazi bigot. I mean, every single time I report on the border, I am told that I am a disgrace to the entire Hispanic community. That um, every single Hispanic that I have met in my life loves the reporting and they don't like the illegal immigration either.
0: Most of them, I imagine, probably came here, put a lot of work into coming here. It's something that's a point of pride in Latinos that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all my buddies who were Border Patrol were all Latino. Yep. And they love, they love this country, probably more than people who were born here and didn't know any better because they have family members that remember something else that was harder. Yeah. And yeah. now they have an opportunity to live in nice neighborhoods and have all the amenities that uh, you have as an American.
1: So, yeah. It, and I always say that too, like the reason why we're seeing all of these fake and made up problems, uh, because my generation is very coddled as is Gen Z. They don't have real problems. They have easy lives in this country. This is one of the easiest times to be alive. And I know like people like to pretend that they're so oppressed and they're victims and they're this and that, and they need reparations. The reason why they're complaining so much is because they've never truly been oppressed. If you look at other countries who have dealt very recently with communism, with socialism, with uh, authoritarian dictatorships, I mean, Young park escaped North. North Korea. It's a modern day story of somebody who was living under such oppression that she had to eat bugs and she had to be sold into sex slavery to escape her country. Mm. It is still happening every single day. And then you have Americans who have the audacity to tell me that, um, they're oppressed because they're obese and people are being mean to them by calling them fat.
0: Right. Like, well, bro, we've, what? We, yeah. We, we've lost uh, shame and uh, the normal amounts of shame that you should have for the things that are your weaknesses that you can fix. Yeah. yeah these are not immutable characteristics being fat. Um, being lazy, you know, being dumb. And yet, you, I mean, some people are <laughs> yeah. genetically on a, a place where, and I'm very gentle and tolerant to people. You look at him and you go like, that guy, you know, he's only like a 40 horsepower motor. He's not gonna, <laughs> he's not running on the Autobahn. And and so you, you can, you know, be tolerant of that. But generally speaking, I think you're right. It's, it's so soft and so gentle that we're gonna be dealing with some pretty hard times mm-hmm. simply because we've been coddling people in that way.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is a, another thing that I try to advocate for is just, you um, discipline in one's life and putting yourself through hard situations like i one of my smacked
0: by a crackhead it's good for you
1: one of my life mottos is to do something that you hate every single day and by hate i mean that could be like going to the gym waking up early when you don't want to reading a book like something that you don't want to do you have to discipline yourself every single day to do something difficult because if you don't you do fall into this pattern of laziness you do fall into this pattern of because Even thinking outside of the box is hard to do, you know, especially with all the propaganda we're being hit with, Uh, going and searching out new information or thinking outside of the box or thinking for yourself is a difficult thing to do in the modern day. So I applaud people who even do that. And that's why I encourage it. And I always tell my audience too, like, look, don't listen to me, Um, you know, don't let me be the end all be all for your information go fact check me. Go tell me if you think that I'm wrong. Go and, you know, listen to somebody else's viewpoint. Uh, that's why I really do encourage people to speak to leftists as well. And I like to speak to people on the opposite side. I'm like, tell me why you think the way that you do, because I'm really interested in understanding you. Uh, let's have a conversation, which usually ends in me getting slapped in the face. but
0: <laughs> Or urine thrown on you.
1: Yeah, it's like, yeah, it is what it is. Um, but Yeah, you know, that's like what I always encourage all audiences to do is just uh, understand how blessed we are to live in the United States of America. Um, Understand how blessed you are and how much opportunity that you have if you choose to uh, utilize that opportunity. Because, you know, we've had so many incredible success stories of immigrants who've come to this country and have had zero dollars in their pocket. And they're now business owners. There is zero excuse for anybody in this country, regardless of their gender or their sexuality or their skin tone, not to be successful in this country, to be quite honest with you, I think that, uh, you know, I'm more elevated in society because I'm a brown woman. And I don't like that. I don't like that at all. That's why I try to work as hard as I do, because I'm like, I don't ever want anything to be handed to me in this life. And I don't ever want anybody in my audience to adopt a victim mentality, go out and carve your own path, go and utilize the opportunity that has become available to everybody in this country. Don't be a victim.
0: I love it. And uh, I think you're successful because you are an exceptional person. Thank you. You are able to speak and articulate your point and you have tenacity, which many people do not have. So good on you.
1: Thank you Way thank to be you.
0: a good example to people. Tell people where they can follow you, your handles and things like that. Uh, I know your audience is bigger than mine, but we will share them as many times as we can and we will cross pollinate and get that thing up to
1: 500,000 followers absolutely thank you thank you uh y'all can go follow my youtube channel go watch my mini documentary sav says uh, you can follow me on twitter sav underscore says underscore instagram at sav with one n and then also my website sav says where you can find all of my articles all of my mini documentaries my own podcast as well everyone has a podcast nowadays mine isn't as good as kyle's guys but you know it's there
0: don't even start <laughs> we'll do it again at some point when you uh when you recover from your pride mm-hmm. and then your therapy sessions yeah. that that have to come from all the uh, nasty things you've seen.
1: Oh gosh, pray and for me, guys.
0: Thanks for getting up early and driving out here against traffic into the uh, the nether reaches of uh, Northwestern Austin.
1: Absolutely, I truly love you guys. I don't wake up this early for anybody, okay? So
0: she told me that earlier on too. Like
1: F- this, share, subscribe.
0: You got it, We <laughs> my, my folks don't like to say uh, smash. They say like the smash button. The smash button is the thumbs.
1: Like the smash button, guys.
0: Fantastic stuff. Thanks so much for joining me, guys. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Again, if you liked hearing what you did, we do these things occasionally in the studio when we have someone so exceptional as Savannah Hernandez joining us. I'm very grateful for you taking the time this morning, and uh, we will do this again on Friday. I think we're actually going to have Real Steve Friend as a recurring segment. Uh, Steve Friend has some updates. He's flying around the country. I think he said he's going to be in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know what's in Columbus. I'm sort of nervous for him to find out what's that. why he's there. Uh-huh. Uh, but Steve Friend, another FBI whistleblower. We'll see him again soon. And uh, until then, thanks so much to my guest. Folks, uh, we will see you again on Friday. And uh, let's do this soon. There we go. There's the button. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash kileserafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.